Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Appreciate our elders thinking of us and uh, making those, having those discussions and being thoughtful about the flock here. Genesis chapter 1. Well, uh, normally the second Sunday morning at this time is our Q&A morning, but last week we had a special guest. Uh, I do need to say a little bit about that just so you know uh, that uh, Brent Dyer that was here last week and spoke with us and talked with the elders and with me about uh, working here uh, as a trainee intern, uh, that Brent has some time in which to make a decision. He's going to be back, getting back to us about that hopefully by the beginning of February. So about another week and a half or so, we should know something from him. But uh, that's where that stands, and uh, we'll be sure and fill you in when we know more about that. But uh, appreciate everyone being so kind and welcoming to Brent. Uh, however, that bumped our Q&A to today. So while our young people are not in here, I normally like to have the young people in here for Q&A because, frankly, I think Q&A is interesting. And uh, sometimes I think there are some odd questions that intrigue our young people. Um, it, nevertheless, we're going to press ahead with our Q&A because I have lots of cues that I need to get to and I can't miss a month uh, of uh, answering some questions. So, uh, our questions, there are two questions that I want to cover this morning and they, they tie together. Uh, and so I put these together because one of them I had had for a little while and then another one came in that said these need to be dealt with together. And uh, the basic question that we're going to be covering and the other is kind of a, a flows out of that is the question, should Christians keep kosher? And I hope you understand when I use the word kosher, I'm using that kind of accommodatively. Kosher is a word that is a, a common Hebrew word used to describe the idea of how food is prepared. And kosher rules is, a, is sort of a shorthand way of talking about the long list of dietary laws, things that Jewish people could and could not eat, the clean and unclean meats. And so the question is, knowing those rules are there, what foods you should and should not eat in the Old Testament are those things that are binding on Christians. So I want to take a few minutes and just sort of look at the history of that, look into the New Testament, and then draw some conclusions from the record. So we'll start here in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Genesis 1 and verse 28. After making man, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So you notice, in the Garden of Eden, everyone, animal and man, was expected to eat plants. There is not an expectation of there being any violence. Remember, they are in the garden. Okay, so food is constantly growing all around them. And he says, I've given all of these plants to all of you to eat. So there's no eating of other animals. It doesn't appear even other animals don't eat other animals. It is instead everyone is sort of a vegetarian, if you'll, you'll pardon that. Everyone is eating uh, fruits and uh, plants all the time. However, uh, that changes after the fall of man. Uh, part of the, the curse that comes on Adam is that the ground will be cursed and he'll have to work harder in order to get food. And that's described in Genesis chapter 3. Then you begin to see a couple of things that I think we need to point out in terms of the idea of kosher, which is the idea of clean and unclean animals. And that happens in Genesis chapter 6. So Genesis chapter 6, you probably recognize that as when there is the description of the coming flood. 
Genesis 6 and verse 20, he's telling Noah what to bring into the ark. And he says, of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every, short, every sort shall come, in to keep, to come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So food there, still, we're still under this system where it seems to be plants. And so you bring all kinds of food for you and all kinds of food for the animals that are with you. But then in chapter 7 and verse 2, he says, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now, I hope it strikes you as strange what you just read. Because he says, Noah, take clean and unclean animals. What is that? Now, we know, because we know what's going to happen in Leviticus, what clean and unclean mean as applied to animals. But how did Noah know that? We just don't have any information about that, whether God had delineated these animals are good or bad, because Noah wasn't eating animals up to this point. So it's a very odd thing. Noah seems to know what he means, because Noah seems to you know, be able to take the clean and the unclean animals. The only thing that I would say may help us a little bit with that is in chapter 8. So let's look in chapter 8, verse 20, Genesis 8 and 20. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after the flood. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. All right, so the clean animals are specified for sacrifice. Noah knows which ones they are, and he uses those to offer his sacrifices. So I think what we may be seeing here is God saying, bring these animals, I want these for sacrifices, but I don't want you to eradicate the species just to have this sacrifice. Remember, if they were to take these animals and kill them and burn them, that would be the end of them. These are the ones that are on the ark. So he says instead, bring extra for the sacrifice. So uh, a couple of things about that. Let me just say, in terms of clean and unclean, Maybe Noah didn't know the specifics of that, and maybe he just was told by God, or these animals come to him specially. But it seems more likely to me that this is about sacrifice. God wants Noah to know, and wants the people to know, that there are certain kinds of animals that he wants and approves of, and that he wants them to sacrifice and to know that difference. All right, so after the flood, God seems to change the rules for mankind. I'm in Genesis 9 now. Look in Genesis 9. It says, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. All right, now do you see the dramatic change in these verses? Okay, he says, the way I gave you plants before, now I give you everything. In fact, there's not even a restriction. He doesn't say there's some animals you can't touch. He says, I give you everything. Every moving thing, verse 3, that lives shall be food for you. So that is a dramatic shift. The only restriction here is the idea of blood. That's in verse 4. Don't eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. The blood represents the life itself. God says, I don't want you to eat that way. So, this is the way things seem to continue for many centuries, where God just basically says, now I'm allowing you to eat animals, to eat meat, and you can eat whatever animal you want. So the only thing that changes about that is going to be what happens when God takes the Israelites to himself 
and decides he wants to make them a special people and gives them special rules for eating and says there are certain things that are now off limits. But it, it appears to me from, from kind of an overview standpoint that this is kind of the way God expected the world to work from this point forward and that the, the Jewish period where he has some different rules for a special nation seems to me to be a, a little bit of an aberration in that general plan. So I, that's the way I view it, and uh, that's going to kind of be reflected in what I say from this point forward. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the kosher law itself. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11, this is where God gives the rules to the Israelites about what they can eat and what they cannot, what's clean and what's unclean. Leviticus 11, verse 1, Leviticus 11 and verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you, and he goes through the list. And uh, you can look through those lists. There's a list for kind of each class of animal. You've got different ones for uh, sea life and for birds. Basically, birds that aren't predators are clean. Uh, you've got different kinds of insects, and the only insects that are included as clean are grasshoppers and locusts. And so you've got all these rules and how they're supposed to view different animals, but it's specifically there are clean animals that are acceptable and there are unclean animals that you can't eat. A lot of people have studied the diet of the Israelites, if you follow these rules, uh, for you know, some of the benefits of that, as well as you know, the potential for disease and things. Uh, if things are poorly cooked or if they're eaten raw or if you're eating things that are scavengers and things like that. And uh, it is in their determination that this would be a particularly healthy diet, uh, especially for a people that are kind of uh, nomadic uh, in this era. And especially it seems wise and kind of ahead of its time in terms of the, the classification and the careful use of Okay, we're not going to eat certain things because these things could be dangerous. In fact, I'll admit, just reading through Leviticus 11 this week, I'm impressed because I see something like uh, kind of the, the precursor to germ theory. You know, the idea that things can be contaminated. And, and if you look carefully through this, you know, you don't want to use the bowl that's had an unclean animal in it. You don't want to touch the blood. You don't want to be downriver from something. And uh, it's amazing to me because you know... In the 1800s, we had doctors who did not realize that when they went from one patient to another, they needed to wash their hands. I'm talking about in Western society. And yet, here we are long before the civilization that we understand. And here are God-giving rules saying, be careful about contamination, be careful about being unclean. And using that terminology to help them, I believe, not only be different from the world, but also stay safe and healthy. Now, the main point, look down in verse 44 of Leviticus 11, verse 44. The main point is about them being different. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. I, I, I think it's a powerful thing to think that every day, if you were a Jewish person and you sat down to eat, you thought, what does God say about this? Every day, every eating choice, however many times a day you eat, that choice is going to reflect your commitment to God. You are going to be separated 
from the people around you every day by what you choose. God wanted them to be different, and this certainly made them different. In fact, there were times when the Israelites were, for example, when they were in captivity. And here is Daniel being offered all these delicacies of the king of Babylon, and he chose not to defile himself with the things that the king gave him. Everybody else would say, wow, what a great meal. Daniel says, careful, I don't want to defile myself. I don't want to become unclean. This made the Jewish people different. So that is the general idea of the kosher rules. Now, I want to say, when you get to the New Testament, uh, there is a shift away from this perspective in the New Testament. And that starts with Jesus. Let's look in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. I want you to notice that Jesus says something in Mark chapter 7 that no rabbi of his day would have said. This is when Jesus is tangling with the Pharisees because they criticize his disciples. His disciples don't eat with washed hands. That's not a sanitary thing. That is a, a, a point of following the elders' tradition and about ceremonial defilement. But Mark chapter 7 and verse 14 it says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand... There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus' point is that it's not about my hands are dirty and I eat something and so I become defiled. He says it's not even about something you put into your body that defiles you. Those things go into your stomach. They don't go into your heart. They don't define your character. He says instead what defiles you is what comes out of you, what you end up doing as a result of what's in your heart. But Mark makes the comment in verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. Matthew also comments at this stage, that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, because Jesus is basically saying, you know, all that stuff you read in Leviticus 11 about clean and unclean, he says, that's not what makes you clean or unclean. Animals, things outside you don't make you clean or unclean. He declared all foods clean, Mark says. So, none of the rabbis was saying this in Jesus' day. Sometimes people talk about how much Jesus was like other rabbis, his contemporaries. This is nothing any rabbi would have said. Because this has turned the whole boat over. Uh, this is saying, no, this kosher law that's been in place for so long is no longer here. Uh, it's no longer binding. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that all Jesus' disciples immediately start eating bacon. Okay? That does not mean that there's an immediate shift. But it does signal something that's going to be coming and playing out through the rest of the New Testament. Let's turn to Acts 10. Acts 10. You're probably aware of the fact that all of the earliest Christians are Jews which means that they share that Jewish worldview of clean and unclean foods, that they have probably eaten carefully their whole lives, and also that because of that, they exclude Gentiles from becoming Christians. Gentiles are not allowed to become Christians in the beginning. But then Peter has this vision, and I want to talk about it because I need to clarify something here. Acts chapter 10 and verse 9, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. Again, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So Peter has a vision about food and all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And they say, the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I don't do that. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. He's talking about kosher law. Now, here is the difficulty of this text. I don't believe the point of the vision is about kosher laws. In fact, I think Peter himself says the point of the vision is not about what we eat. That's in verse 28. Look down in verse 28. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is not about food. This is about people. This is about how Peter and the apostles were excluding people that God was willing to accept. So what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Don't call them unclean. So while Peter is talking about his diet, when he says, I've never eaten anything, God is trying to get a point across that's not about diet. So if we're going to talk about this question, should Christians keep kosher, I'm not going to this vision. Okay? This vision, does, to me, does not prove that we do or do not keep kosher. It's sort of ancillary because God has a different point in mind. However, there are some places I would go to, and I want to show them to you now. Uh, look in Acts chapter 15. So at this point, uh, Gentiles are allowed to be Christians, but, but Gentiles and Jews don't eat the same things, and that becomes a, an issue. Because when Jews and Gentiles are put together in a local church, most of the time they're going to want to eat together. That's just kind of what we do, isn't it? That's a great social occasion something that we share together, and it's a great way to get to know one another. That's always been true. And so then the question becomes, well, what if you eat things that I think are wrong? Now, that's not going to be a great experience, is it? And so that begins to uh, be, continue to be a part of the, the church life in the beginning. And so in Acts 15, the elders in Jerusalem and the apostles gather together to consider what we're going to tell Gentiles when they become Christians. Do we need to tell them to keep the law of Moses? Do we need to tell them to be circumcised? And part of it is, do we need to tell them to quit eating these unclean foods? And the essence is that the apostles and elders agree that no, we don't need to tell them to keep the Jewish restrictions and regulations. So I want to read to you in Acts 15 and verse 19. Acts 15 and verse 19, this is James speaking. Therefore, my judgment, he says, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James's counsel is accepted. And by the way, I, it looks like I might not get to my second question. My second question is about these three verses. So if you have questions... Uh, about that verse and, you know, the things strangled and things offered, things offered to idols and things with blood. Uh, well, we might get to it today, but we might get to it next month. But the point is, they have a few restrictions about food, but did you know what's missing from the list? Unclean food. There is no restriction given. They do not say, now you Gentiles, you stay away from pigs and horses and camels. You stay away from all... No. The only things they stay away from are things with specific objections that have to do with their idol worshiping. So, this is a, a notable shift 
that says Christians don't have to keep kosher laws. If anywhere was going to say, here's where you need to do it, this would be the place. As Gentiles who become Christians are given lists of rules about what they should eat, and notably absent from the list is unclean food. All right, a couple of other passages uh, to kind of confirm this point. One is Colossians 2. Let's look in Colossians 2. Colossians 2 and verse 16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, Colossians 2, 16, in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So all of these things are Jewish rules from the law of Moses. You've got the idea of food and drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths. And he says, don't let anybody judge you about them. Don't let them force you to keep them because they're not the real thing. They're shadows and you have the substance. They were the prelude and you've got the main event. So don't think that you have to go back and keep those rules. So if someone's going to ask me the question, should Christians keep kosher? Colossians 2.16 is high on my list. If you want to keep kosher, that's, that's a liberty you have. But don't let anyone judge you, forcing you, condemning you if you do or do not do that. Because it's obvious that that is not the way we serve Jesus when that's part of the shadow instead of the substance. Christians were not expected to keep kosher. 1 Timothy chapter 4 is the other place I would go to talk about this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, I want to read beginning in verse 1. First Timothy 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So he says some are going to depart from the faith, and one of the marks of them leaving the faith is that they will require abstinence from foods that are fine. They're going to tell people you can't eat that. And so what he says here in verse 4, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. If it's received with thanksgiving. Boy, that is pretty open-ended, isn't it? Everything created by God is good, and it's to be received, if, if you have it with thanksgiving. So thank God for it and eat it. He even says specifically in verse 5, it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. Do you hear that? Made holy? Okay, which really harkens back to the Leviticus thing, isn't it? Okay, so what might be unclean, so to speak, in and of itself, is made holy when we receive it with gratitude and we acknowledge that it's a gift from God to sustain our lives. So thank God for it and eat it. That would be the New Testament ethic of eating, that everything is accepted because it's a gift from God and we receive it with thanksgiving and it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So uh, having said all of that, when someone asks me this question, should Christians keep kosher, I conclude that we do not have to keep kosher to serve Jesus we're free to eat what we like, and that that period of keeping kosher was something that applied to the Jewish people for some specific purposes, and that those things have been lifted in Christ. However, our bodies are still the temple of the Holy Spirit, and just because we can eat something doesn't always mean we should eat something. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of eating something 
that was so bad for your body that you felt guilty after you had eaten it? Can we learn something here? That's probably not a thing we should continue to eat. I think we need some wisdom in that. Not because there are rules that we're breaking, you know, we're violating. God said, no, you cannot eat this thing. But because God has given us our bodies, he expects us to take care of our bodies, and God says, I have a special purpose for your bodies, and so just because we can doesn't mean we should. But having said all of that, um, I'm not going to let anyone judge me or judge you about these laws that God had given in a previous era. Kosher laws are not binding under Christ. All right, well... I have three minutes, which is not nearly enough time to cover the second question. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the second question and then not answer it. Uh, the question is, are the rules of Acts 15.20 and Acts 15.29 binding on Christians today? These are the rules that we covered a minute ago where there is a list. Things uh, sacrificed to idols, things strangled, things with blood and sexual immorality. And uh, so this is a difficult question. I've heard it come up several different times. And uh, so... If you're curious about that, well, you have to wait for next month. We'll have to cover that at another time. But I appreciate your attention, and I want to encourage you, as always, keep asking questions, keep sending those to me, and we'll continue to answer those as uh, long as we have opportunity. Thanks for your attention, and we'll be dismissed for our classes.